this month on Security Management Highlights. The report found that more than 16,000 complaints of sexual abuse have been reported since the year 2000. In the facilities where they're supposed to be cared for, some of America's senior citizens are facing abuse. News and Trends editor Mark Torallo tells us more. The weapon is always psychological. It's creating and manipulating levels of fear for a strategic goal. The psychological consequences of a terror attack on victims in greater society can sometimes outlast the physical damage. Crisis management expert Steve Cremando joins us. Plus, they were able to come up with a really robust solution that addressed both the surveillance problem and cellular communication. Assistant editor Lily Chapa is here to talk about her cover story on how Houston, Texas made Super Bowl 51 a security success. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on the July 2017 edition of Security Management Highlights. A new study says seniors may be experiencing widespread sexual abuse at the hands of those charged with caring for them. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo is here to talk about a report from CNN that looks deeper into the disturbing trend. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Holly. Your article focuses in part on a CNN report about sexual abuse in nursing homes in the United States. Tell us more about what that study found. Yes, a very disturbing study. It was a CNN special report called Sick, Dying, and Raped in America's Nursing Homes. And it found that this terrible problem is probably more widespread than is generally acknowledged. The report found that more than 16,000 complaints of sexual abuse have been reported since the year 2000 in long-term care facilities. And long-term care facilities includes both nursing homes and assisted living facilities. You know, it's a fairly large slice of the population using those facilities. Right now, about 1.6 million U.S. residents live in roughly 17,000 nursing homes across the country. Yes, that's definitely a gruesome picture. And you write that even the CNN reporters had a hard time gathering facts and getting a definitive picture of the real problem with elder abuse. Why is that? Yeah, that's due for several reasons. One is the inadequate state of statistics about this problem. To give an example, the number that I cited earlier about over 16,000 complaints, the actual number is probably considerably higher. The 16,000 number only captures cases in which a state's long-term care ombudsman, those are officials who advocate for facility residents, were involved in the case. So if the ombudsman was not involved in the case, it wouldn't get included in that statistic, even though it may have been a serious case of abuse. Another example is the report found that between 2013 and 2016, the federal government cited more than 1,000 nursing homes for mishandling or failing to prevent alleged cases of rape and sexual assault. But here again, all the complaints and allegations that did not result in what the government calls a deficiency or a facility citation, those aren't included in the reporting system. So that 1,000 number is again low. Besides the statistics, 
you also have the problems that very few accusations actually end up being proven. Sometimes they're dismissed because investigators think the victim is simply too old, not in their right mind, something like that. And then you have cases, of course, and this is true of sexual abuse in general, that don't even reach the accusation stage. There's one government agency that estimates only one in 14 elder abuse incidents are actually reported by the victim. So Mark, this problem sounds like it rises to the level of lawmakers wanting to intervene. What are they saying about this problem? Yes, state lawmakers have been intervening. One of the main ways they have is they've been working on legislation that sets out rules of operations for surveillance cameras. These are sometimes called granny cams for short, but obviously um, they're used to monitor residential rooms in senior facilities. So right now, experts say at least a half dozen states that have passed these laws that regulate granny cams. Often these laws will say, well, granny cams can be used if certain conditions are met. For example, the cameras must be visible, no hidden cameras, and all residents of the room must consent to their use. So if your grandmother's in a facility, but your grandmother has a roommate, both of them have to consent that it's okay. Now, one problem, however, is that some experts say there are practical factors that can limit the use of granny cams. It can get costly when you talk about about all the tape that it shoots and stored and things like that. There are installation issues if the facility is objecting or they want it in a certain place. And then in many cases, if a family hears of an incident, they'd much rather just move their loved one to another facility rather than install a camera. They think, you know, a camera is just not sufficient. So what some experts say is cameras can be a good option. They're probably not super popular right now because of the practical limitations, but it's good to have them out there. So you talked to a few sources. Did any of them offer best practices for addressing this problem overall? They do. In, in fact, they, they offer best practices for both facility managers and for families. For managers, it's really important to investigate all claims instead of just dismissing them as being from a problem patient. And also just the logistics of if there's an investigation, preserve evidence, maintain a valid reporting system. That's very important keep statistics on all these incidents, what's happening with them, train staff to notice observable signs of an incident. And of course, um, whenever possible, beef up staff, because often these are crimes of opportunity. So the more staff you have, the more eyes are out there, you're probably going to reduce the likelihood of incidents happening. Now for families, really one of the key points that experts make is always take whatever your loved one is saying seriously. Because even someone who has dementia or partial dementia, an older person, even someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's, it doesn't necessarily mean whatever they say can't be trusted. So you really need to demonstrate you're listening, want to make sure that, you know, they're being understood. And then whenever possible, really ask their opinion. If you decide, okay, maybe a granny cam is best, 
just ask the loved one, is this what you would like? Is this all right with you? If you're considering maybe moving them to another facility, don't underestimate their powers of agency because even someone with some mental illness or some mental um, disabilities can, can, you know, still be on the mark for a lot of these things. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mark, for the update on that CNN report and expanding it further on what might be done to address the problem. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Holly. When terror strikes, the emotional and psychological impact is not always as apparent as the physical damage. But security practitioners should take the behavioral factors into account when conducting counterterrorism planning. Steve Cremando, principal of Behavioral Sciences Applications, tells us more about his article on emotional responses to terrorism. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Holly. Appreciate the chance to, uh, to speak to you. Tell us a little bit more about the origins of your article. Why is it so important to consider the psychological ramifications of a terror attack? Well, it's very important because often planners can, can think about the human factors or the psychological impact almost as a secondary concern to physical security and, and the you know, damage done by a terrorist attack. And you have to understand the nature of terrorism really is twofold. There's the strategy and the tactics. And the strategy basically is psychological. The real tool of the terrorist, the ultimate tool of the terrorist, for example, wouldn't be something as exotic as chemical, biological, or radiological weapons. The weapon is always psychological. It's creating and manipulating levels of fear for a strategic goal. And the type of fear that the terrorist deals in is referred to as ambient fear. And ambient fear is that fear that's always running in the background while we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. That's really how fear works optimally from the terrorist standpoint. And that's kind of the position that we are in worldwide today is knowing that there will always be another attack. So the tactics bombing, shooting, kidnapping, vehicular attacks, they play into this, and they play into it especially with the the idea that the attacks can seem random. There's nothing random about them. If we look at how the bombings of the commuter trains in Spain occurred just days before their elections, changing the outcome of the elections several years ago, we saw the same sort of thing just uh, a week ago in terms of two back-to-back terrorist attacks in the UK and radical changes in the outcome of their elections. So it's important to understand that when we think about the strategy of terrorism, psychology is actually the most important ingredient in the mix. So what are the different types of psychological responses that there can be to a terror attack? I guess the best way to phrase this are there are behavioral and there are emotional considerations. And I know that sounds nearly identical. But in this context, when we speak about the behavioral considerations, we're talking really about what people do and don't do during and immediately after some sort of terrorist attack. And obviously, what people do and don't do can make them part of the solution or make them part of the problem. There is the consideration from the practitioner's standpoint of really understanding, in a very general way, human behavior in order to make sure that emergency plans and procedures and even exercises are based on accurate behavioral assumptions. And when we think about the emotional component, that does start to spill more into the mental health aspect, ranging from, you know, what you and I would consider as normal reactions normal people would have to abnormal events, the shock, the horror, the the grief, the sadness of, of the situation, actually ranging upstream to more serious mental health consequences that may touch on diagnostic sort of situations, things like post-traumatic stress disorder, 
acute stress disorder, or other diagnosable sorts of mental health conditions that can flow out of exposure to a serious and traumatic situation. How does conventional terrorism differ from unconventional terrorism? And how does the emotional and psychological response of the victim vary based on which type the attackers use? Yeah, there's a couple of very important considerations for practitioners, and, and I'll try to touch on three of them very quickly. The first is the concept of the behavioral footprint. When we speak about the behavioral footprint, we know that in terrorist events, you know, when the event has bookends, we clearly know when it starts, when it stops, if you're in or out. And that's more obvious in conventional terrorism, which are events like bombing, shooting, kidnapping, and the vehicular attacks I mentioned earlier, as opposed to unconventional terrorism, which would be more of those exotic sorts of weapons, such as chemical, biological, radiological weapons, and so forth. When people do not have a clear sense of those parameters, if they're in or they're out, we end up with a much larger behavioral footprint, the concept I mentioned, which is the ratio of psychological casualties to medical casualties. So there's a tremendous difference during the immediate response when it is conventional versus unconventional. It also matters in the long-term recovery because when we have an act of conventional terrorism, the behavioral and the psychological response is fairly immediate. It's very acute. It tends to be primarily what we would consider classic or typical traumatic stress reactions, such as arousal. People are wired. They're jumpy. They're hyper. Avoidance. People don't want to be reminded of the event. It's just too unpleasant. And re-experiencing, and that may be in dreams and nightmares and flashbacks and in intrusive thoughts and images, things of that nature. But when we have unconventional terrorism and we lack those bookends, people don't know when it starts and stops, and it's an event where you can't see, smell, hear, or taste a hazard, something like a biological agent or a chemical agent, we get a very different reaction, and the reaction is primarily somatic. It manifests itself as physical symptoms, and it tends to be much more chronic. Those reactions tend to linger for months and years, much, much longer than those conventional terrorist strikes. Steve, what are some of the other factors you write about that can affect the behavioral response of victims? Well, uh, there's a, a few things for, for security professionals can, to consider, and that's really about how we respond and actually how we prepare to respond, and that may be what we do in our plans, our policies, and in our exercises, and so forth. And I'd really like to focus on three elements, and believe it or not, these core concepts of how we respond in the immediate wake of a violent event to, to manage the emotional consequences, these concepts actually go back 100 years. They're attributed to an army psychologist, T.W. Solomon, in 1917. And Solomon had said, based on his observation, the three most important aspects of, of effective response, he summarized with the acronym PIE. And PIE, P-I-E, represents proximity, immediacy, and expectancy. And proximity was go to those witnesses, those victims, those survivors, go directly to them. Don't wait for them to come looking for assistance. And what we know from a psychological standpoint is in the wake of some sort of violent event, most people don't go looking for mental health support, and actually most people reject it when it's offered to it. So we have to make a concerted effort as organizations and security professionals to make sure we initiate and have mechanisms in place to get care directly to those victims and their witnesses. The I in PI was for immediacy, and that meant essentially you know, going sooner was better than going later. Now, that's 1917. Today in our era, we have much more advanced neuroimaging. We could look at things like fMRIs and see brain function and action, and, 
And one of the things we know through advanced imaging is there's a very critical window of time in the first hours and the first days to get or at least initiate that rapid emotional or psychological support. So P, we go, we go directly to people. I, we go immediately to people. And E is we go with a sense of expectancy. And what we mean by expectancy is we know the vast majority of people will recover in their own time and on their own terms and not necessarily go on to be psychologically damaged goods. But none of this happens accidentally, which means built in to our response plans for any kind of traumatic event, you know, whether it's a natural disaster, a technological disaster, or an act of terrorism, which is a disaster of human intention, we really have to make sure that we have those mechanisms in place to meet those three sort of touchstones. Proximity, we can go right to the victims. I go quickly and we can go with that sense of hopefulness. And you know what? Depending on the nature of the event, it may not be that we can get employee assistance personnel or other external resources very quickly to the scene of a terrorist strike. And there's a lot of other barriers too. So one of the ways that organizations can think proactively about this is starting to develop some psychological first aid capacity within their organizations. Because, for example, during something like an active shooter event or the immediate wake of a vehicular attack, it's a crime scene. We're not going to get counselors and other resources there very quickly. There are going to be many barriers, such as police taking statements or not releasing people quickly to receive those levels of help. So those of us who are on site, which may be coworkers and colleagues, may be the very best source of immediate psychological support. And the concept with psychological first aid is just like basic medical first aid. Someone does not have to be a medical professional to know the very basics of first aid, and someone does not need to be a mental health professional in any way to understand and apply the very basics of psychological first aid. It's really meant to be a neighbor helps neighbor approach or, or coworker helps coworker approach. So just to come full circle, it's just important for every security professional to understand that the psychological aspects of terrorism should not be an afterthought. Psychology is at the very core of every terrorist scenario, and it's important to really imagine that, to understand that, and make sure that the psychological impact of terrorism is fully present in every part of your plans, your policies, and your procedures. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Well, thanks, Holly. It's been great to speak to you again. Thank you. Officials in Houston, Texas, worked with public and private partners to enhance security for the 2017 Super Bowl. Assistant Editor Lily Choppa tells us more about how they accomplished their goal and the lasting impact it will have on the city. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us to talk about your cover story for the July issue. Happy to be here. Let's start off by setting the scene and talk about the challenges faced by the city of Houston when it came to hosting the 2017 Super Bowl. Sure. The 51st Super Bowl football game was held in Houston, Texas, and almost 71,000 people converged to see the New England Patriots beat the Atlanta Falcons at NRG Stadium. Now, Houston is home to 2.2 million people, and there were a lot of festivities and events throughout the city leading up to the Super Bowl. Obviously, officials had to figure out how to multiply their forces to protect all of the goings-on in the city. But another big concern was bolstering first responder communications in the midst of the giant crowds. You know how sometimes you might have trouble making a call or sending a text in a really crowded area? That affects first responders, too. Another issue was conducting surveillance of these areas where there aren't currently cameras set up because they're not traditionally high-traffic spaces. You write that the city had to prepare its large urban park known as Discovery Green and the surrounding parking lots for Super Bowl Live, an event that was expected to have more than 15,000 people a day attending. How did Houston go about completing this build-out? 
Well, I spoke with Jack Hanegriff, who's the Infrastructure Protection Coordinator for Houston's Office of Public Safety, and he said he was tasked with addressing all those problems I mentioned just four months before the Super Bowl. They were able to come up with a really robust solution that addressed both the surveillance problem and cellular communication. The city worked with several vendors to outfit Discovery Green with cameras from Axis. Workers spent 480 hours installing the cameras. Some were on permanent structures, but most were in tandem with the build-out of the Super Bowl Live infrastructure. Hannah Griff said that kiosks and stages kept being moved around, so it was a challenge to constantly move the cameras and get them situated. But at the end of the setup, 40 access cameras, along with 26 existing cameras, were brought together through Vidsys middleware and connected to fiber laid by Verizon. Using the fiber connection, along with narrow beam technology, the cameras were able to transmit their images without relying on wireless or radio frequencies. So tell us more about the emergency operations plan for the Super Bowl. Of course, no one wants anything to go wrong, but you have to anticipate having incidents. And some of the technological solutions related to that piece of the puzzle for the city. I know you mentioned first responders in the beginning. Um, How did all that get incorporated? Well, the first responders got creative and actually leveraged the live camera feeds to help find the exact location of people who needed assistance. They also used portable devices that operated on a broadband spectrum reserved for first responders and were dispatched by GPS. But even then, in the crowds of people, it was hard for first responders to quickly locate a patient. So one guy at the command center would see the live feed and would verbally instruct the first responder on what direction to go or what to look for. This really helped them quickly locate people who needed help while on foot in a giant crowd. Now, will any of these technologies employed for the big event remain in place afterwards? Yeah, they sure will. The city is creating a sort of technology playground with the 40 new cameras. A team of businesses, first responders, and industry partners will decide where and how to redeploy the cameras, and everyone will have hands-on interaction with the new technologies. This will also help strengthen partnerships between local businesses and first responders and encourage them to be more proactive in perimeter protection. So pretty much everybody wins, except for the Falcons. Oh, that's harsh, Lily. But yes, it's so good to hear that this wasn't just a one-and-done situation, but that they're continuing to use the infrastructure afterwards. So thank you so much for explaining all that. Sure thing. Thanks, Holly. A quick note to our listeners out there. I'll be going on maternity leave this summer, so for the month of August, our format will be a little bit different. I'm going to be doing a rapid-fire podcast with the editors at Security Management on their stories. We'll talk about their biggest takeaways from their articles for the month. It will be quick and informative, and I'm hoping a lot of fun, so be sure to tune in for that episode at the beginning of next month. That does it for the July podcast, and once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and please leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until next time, bye-bye.